you may have discovered by now that there are three phases of the Christian life. Phase one is easy. It's kind of a piece of cake. You put your faith in Jesus Christ and He becomes your Savior and it's all good. Phase two is the difficult phase. You start seeing a discrepancy between the things God asks of you and what you're able to accomplish. And you recognize that the Christian life is not quite as easy as you thought. And it becomes more difficult. The third phase is you come to the conclusion that the Christian life is impossible. It is not humanly possible to live this Christian life. Now, if you are in that third category of recognizing that the things that are expected of us as Christians are humanly impossible, the book of Ephesians is written for you. Turn with me to that book, please, in the New Testament, and pull your notes out of your program. We want to follow along. There are three lifelines. I feel like we're playing who wants to be a millionaire here. Uh, But God has three lifelines that are all contained in the book of Ephesians. The first lifeline is our position in Christ, and we're going to look at that. The second lifeline is prayer and access by prayer to all that we have in Christ. And the third is the person of the Holy Spirit. The book of Ephesians has been called a cathedral. You walk into the first chapter and it's this enormous kind of foyer or lobby that is just gigantic and magnificent. And the entire book is like a cathedral. Um, Someone else has described the book of Ephesians as the crowning jewel of Paul's writings. Someone else has said it's the greatest composition of man. The greatest thing ever written, the book of Ephesians. As we get our arms around each book of the Bible that we're studying our way through This year, we come to the book of Ephesians. We want to get an outline. The outline of the book of Ephesians is simple. It's two sections. There are six chapters to the book of Ephesians. The first three chapters is section one. The the last three chapters is section two. Section one is, is identity, our identity in Christ or our position in Christ. Section two is our responsibility. We could say section one is our uh, position and section two, our responsibility or our duty. The doctrine, the first half, duty, the second half. Identity, the first half, responsibility, the second half. There are 31 things summarized in the book of Ephesians that... Christ has done for us. 31 things. They're all in the first half of the book. There are 41 imperative verbs in the book of Ephesians. 40 of the 41 are in the second half. The only one that's in the first half is really not so much an imperative, but it's the uh, phrase in Ephesians 2, verse 11, remember, remember. Well, it's to remember our position in Christ and all that Christ has done. So it's not really so much an imperative verb. But from chapter 4 on, 
are 40 of the 41 imperatives. Things that we are to do. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, be subject to your husbands. Children, obey your parents. Employers, be a servant to those who serve you. Put on the whole armor of God. Do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. All those are imperative verbs. All things that we're expected to do. Now, the Christian life becomes difficult and then impossible when we forget our identity in Christ. If Ephesians was written backwards, if Paul began with chapters 4 through 6 and put that first, it would wear everyone out. We would all get weary. We'd all feel like, oh, I can't do this. The Christian life is impossible. And humanly speaking, it is. But the sequence of the way Paul wrote this book is intentional. It intentionally contains in the first three chapters who we are in Christ and all that he has done for us. As we've been studying through the Bible, we have been suggesting that we read it with three color pens. Blue, black, and red. Red for all the things God promises to do for us. And the first three chapters, if you mark them with red, black, and blue, the first three chapters should be full of red because it summarizes all these things that God has done for us in Christ. And the promises of God are the first three chapters. The second three chapters should be full of black because it's all the things God tells us to do for Him. The commands. And then special things you want to remember, you can circle in blue and there'll be a little blue sprinkled throughout. But predominantly, the first three chapters are red, the second three chapters are black because that's the way The book is written and constructed. And we learn from that a lot about the Christian life. Now, I want to kind of summarize this and then we're going to walk through the book. The first lifeline that we are thrown as Christians is our identity in Christ. Who we are in Christ. Chapter 1, verse 4. Now follow this. Chapter 1, actually, let's go back to verse 3. From chapter 1, verse 3, through verse 14, is one run-on sentence. You can do that in the Greek language, you can't really do it in English. But it's one blessing of Christ after another. And those verses, three times they build in crescendo to the praise of His glorious grace, to the praise of His glorious grace, to the praise of His glory. Three times in those verses that phrase is repeated because all that Christ has done for us is to bring dividend back to Him to the praise of His glorious grace. But in that construction, beginning with verse 3, The first thing God's done for us is He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. So we've got every blessing in Christ. Then verse 4, we are holy and blameless in Christ. 
Verse 5, it goes on and on and on. All the way through here, there are no less than 31 blessings of what Christ has done for us. You come to chapter 2, and it further explains what Christ has done for us. Beginning, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. But verse 4 and 5, but Christ raised us up. And then those great verses 8 and 9, for it is by grace that we have been saved through faith. And that not of ourselves. It's not the result of works so that no one can boast. And then, we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to walk in those good works. Not telling us to do anything, telling us all that He has done for us so that we can serve Him. One blessing after another. It's our identity in Christ. It's who we are in Christ. And that what we need to understand as believers is that we were not just saved by faith and then tossed adrift to live out the Christian life on our own. Our ability to live out the Christian life is contingent on us understanding who we are in Christ, all He has done for us, and that we are now rooted and established in Him. And because of that, we live out the Christian life as He has designed. So the first lifeline is our identity in Christ, or our position in Christ. The second lifeline is the lifeline of prayer. It's amazing the three large prayers in the book of Ephesians, almost like three mountain ranges, kind of like the the eastern uh, Appalachians, the uh, Rockies, and the Sierra Nevadas. The three mountain ranges of prayer that run through the book. The first is in chapter 1, and both the prayer in chapter 1 and in chapter 3 begin with the three words, for this reason. Verse 15, for this reason, I thank God for you. I never stop praying for you. Verse 17, I keep asking the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, that He may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know Him better, so that you may understand the riches of His inheritance in the saints, so that the eyes of your heart might be opened and enlightened so that you can comprehend and have the hope that is yours in Christ, who exerted that power when He raised Christ up from the dead and seated Him high above all authorities and principalities and powers. That prayer really taking our position in Christ and tapping into it by prayer so that we realize it. Then at the end of chapter 3, very similarly, Paul begins with those three words. For this reason, verse 14. For this reason, I kneel before my Father who is in heaven, from whom every family in heaven derives its name. 
And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to comprehend the length and breadth and height and depth of the love of Christ. And to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled to all the measure of the fullness of God. Prayer in chapter 1 and prayer in chapter 3 has nothing to do with felt needs. It has nothing to do with praying for our mortgage payment or praying for physical needs or for our children or grandchildren. Prayer here is a lifeline to reel in what is ours in Christ. And to bring us back in touch with the love of God. Now, let's just pause a moment. The last book written in the New Testament, which by the way will be in a year from now. uh, Today I think is book 24 out of the 66 books in the Bible. So we're about a third of the way in. But a year from now, we will be studying the last book in the Bible, the book of Revelation. We've got a year to go. That book of Revelation, chapter 2 and 3, have little paragraphs sent to seven specific churches, all in modern-day Turkey. Of the seven, the first was the church of Ephesus, to whom this letter is written. There... Jesus affirms them for their labor, their hard work, and their sound doctrine. They were doctrinally strong. They were workers. But they had one problem. They had lost their first love. Isn't it amazing that here Paul, in the rocky mountains of the book of Ephesians, is scaling the heights and praying for them to know the love of God. Because he saw a chink in their armor. He said, if anything's going to derail you, it's not going to be doctrine. You're not, you're going to have doctrine. You're not going to stop working. You guys are workaholics. You're, you're, you're good at work. You're good at service. But in your doctrine and in your work, you've got a liability. You are in danger of losing touch with the love of God. And here, 20 years after Paul wrote, Ephesians, John writes the book of the Revelation and gets them at the same point. You lost your first love. Now, in case you think every one of of Paul's prayers were answered, here's one that wasn't. At least not for long. He prayed that they would understand the height and depth, length and breadth of the love of God. And to be filled with all the fullness of God. And maybe they were for a season. But less than a generation later, John, in his letter, is rebuking them for the same thing. And when John gives the way back, he says in Revelation chapter 2 to the church in Ephesus, Remember! Remember what you did at first. Remember what Christ did for you. Remember who you are in Christ. John was exhorting them to go back and remember just the way 
Paul does in Ephesians 2, verse 11. So lifeline number one is our position in Christ. When the Christian life begins to get wearisome, it's probably, number one, because we have forgotten our position in Christ. Number two, our prayer life is probably in trouble. Specifically, we are not encountering the love of God while we're praying. And so prayer becomes so important in the book of Ephesians, and it's prayer not just for the immediate, for the day-to-day needs, but for the big stuff. Prayer becomes the environment where we as followers of Christ receive a reshaping of our identity in Christ and receive a fresh encounter with the love of God. Really, the last verses of Ephesians 3 become the hinge that moves from our identity in Christ to our responsibility, from the doctrine of who we are in Christ to our duty as followers of Christ. Those last verses, the prayer at the end, beginning with Ephesians 3:14 through 21. The last two verses are really the doxology. Once Paul prays for them to know the love of God and to be filled with the knowledge of God, he then gives this one grand doxology back to God. Like he did three times in those opening 14 verses of chapter 1. To the praise of His glorious grace. To the praise of His glory. To the praise of His glory. Now at the end of chapter 3, he says, Now to Him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or even imagine, according to the power that works within us. To Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. So that marvelous doxology back to the One who makes it all possible. Now, when we come to our responsibilities, chapter 4, verse 1. If you don't mind writing in your Bible, write on top of chapter 4, verse 1. Ephesians 1, verse 4. Ephesians 1, verse 4 says, He chose us in Christ, or He called us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless. Chapter 4, verse 1, is the outworking of chapter 1, verse 4. Because He called us before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless, chapter 4, verse 1 says, Therefore, live a life worthy of your calling. Because you have been called to be holy and blameless, now live it out. So you see, the way we live out our calling is completely rooted in our identity in Christ in the first place. And if we lose the connection between our identity and our responsibility, the Christian life will not only become difficult, it will become impossible. Now let's have a little quiz. Lifeline number one is identity or our position in Christ. Lifeline number two, prayer. 
And lifeline number three, this is so awesome, I've got goosebumps. Lifeline number three is His presence or the Holy Spirit. Now, you ought to make a note on this. It's not in your notes. I didn't discover this until last night. Pound for pound, verse for verse, the Holy Spirit is referred to more frequently verse for verse in the book of Ephesians than any other book in the Bible. More than 1 Corinthians, more than the Gospel of John, more than any other book in the Bible, the Holy Spirit is referred to more frequently in the book of Ephesians than any other book. It's so awesome. First of all, the prayer. The prayer that Paul prays in chapter 3. He prays for them basically to be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's really the essence, because when you're filled with the Spirit, you do encounter the love of God. Verse 16. I pray that out of His glorious riches He may strengthen you with power through His Spirit. In your inner being. Chapter 4 says do not quench or do not grieve the Holy Spirit whom you have received. Chapter 5 verse 18. Be filled with the Spirit. Now, look up at me for a moment if you would please. In America, the devil has done his best. To remove our confidence in the Holy Spirit. Now listen to me. Your marriage will never work the way God wants it to and the way you want it to without the Holy Spirit. Your children will never grow up the way you want them to and the way God wants them to without the Holy Spirit. You will never be able to pray the way you want to and the way God wants you to without the Holy Spirit. You will never be able to please God the way you want to and the way He wants you to without the Holy Spirit. You'll never be able to obey God the way you want to and the way He wants you to without the Holy Spirit. Paul loved the church in Ephesus. Of all the books so far, I have felt the Holy Spirit tell me, This is the one you need more than any other. Now, you may find that different. Praise God. I'm just telling you what I heard the Lord tell me this morning. I see a whole lot of northeast Atlanta in Ephesus. And if you are weary in well-doing, if you have considered your position as a Christian, and thought, is this really what I want for the rest of my life? If that thought has ever gone through your mind. It may work for some people, but it's not working for me. First of all, let me point you to your position in Christ. Second of all, to prayer, your lifeline to receive all that you have in your position in Christ. And third, the person of the Holy Spirit who wants to impart to you everything that is yours in Christ. It's the message of the book of Ephesians. There's one other little nugget here 
The term heavenly realms is used five times in the book of Ephesians. I'm not sure it's used anywhere else in the Bible. And let me tell you why it's used here. There was a cult in Ephesus called Artemis. Artemis, they were followers of a teacher, of a deity. And in Ephesus, the cult was thick. There were many followers of Artemis. If you read in, this is very interesting. If you read in Acts chapter 19 and 20, you discover that when Paul first got to Ephesus, he said, um, have you been baptized? Yes, we've been baptized by John. Oh, you have not been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. No, we have not. We've been baptized into John. Have you received the Holy Spirit? Have you received what? The Holy Spirit. We don't know the Holy Spirit. Then he prays for them to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they all began speaking in tongues. Then he stayed two years. And during that two-year period, there was such a transformation that the original ten who became followers of Jesus Christ had multiplied. And there was such a disturbance in Ephesus that this pagan city full of occult activity and sorcery, witchcraft, paganism, they came and publicly brought their stuff. And, and they brought their stuff and burned it. And the value of what they burned was somewhere on today's market between $5 million and $15 million worth. 50,000 drachmas, 50,000 days wage. Whatever you make in a day, multiply it by 50,000, and that's the value of what they burned. The word is in the Greek pharmakia, which included drug paraphernalia, because pharmaceuticals, drugs, hash, marijuana, whatever, opium, whatever they had, and other occult sorcery, little voodoo dolls, the whole gamut, they came and brought it out, burned it publicly. The value was huge. So this was a major citywide move of God. But the rest of the city hated it and ran Paul out of town. Paul came back stealth. He met with the leaders of Ephesus after those two years. He met with the leaders in another city. They came, and the end of Acts chapter 20 is some of the best teaching on church leadership you'll ever read. It's absolutely incredible. You can find at least 30 qualities of godly Christian leaders. It's all embedded there like a distilled concentrate. You have to kind of dis- almost... Uh, Cut it with water to, to be able to, to sip it. It's so concentrate with teaching on what true church leadership looks like. But that gives you a picture of how paganized Ephesus was, but then the gospel comes. Now follow this. Five times the word heavenly realms is used. The first place in all literature it was used, it was used by Artemis before Paul. No one else other than Paul ever uses this expression in a Christian context. For Artemis, the heavenly realm was this area where demons inhabited. And he would teach people how to get in touch with the good side of the demons. That's, I mean, it was perverted, but that's what he taught. Paul comes and he redeems that term, heavenly realms. He uses it five times. Chapter 3. 
verse 1. Paul says that you've been seated with Christ in heavenly realms. Again, chapter 1, verse 20. He said, Christ is now raised and seated at His right hand in the heavenly realms. Chapter 2, verse 6. Made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead. It is by grace that we've been saved. And Christ raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms. Then chapter 3, verse 10. His intent, God's purpose, was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. And then chapter 6, verse 12, again, heavenly realms. Here it says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against people, but it's against world rulers, authorities, powers in dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Now, this is so cool. I might have lost everybody. I, I, I realize I ran that risk. But Paul is describing a realm somewhere between earth and heaven where there's a battle going on in the cosmos. There are demons there and there are angels there. And we are already somehow, though we have a physical body and we're here in northeast Atlanta this morning, we are also there in that heavenly realm, seated with Christ. And there where we are seated with Christ, there is the most incredible conflict going on right now between the forces of darkness and the forces of light. And the way this world plays out here on earth is determined by how we play it out in that realm. And Christ is the commander in that realm. And you and I are seated with Him. That means we have a position of authority. And the little skirmishes we are in here on earth are to be one in that realm, not based on who we are, but based on the fact of who Christ is and that we are seated with Him. It's the most awesome thing you can think about. And it's in that realm that we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in that heavenly realm. If you're confused, I really don't blame you. But I had to give it a try. I had to give it a try. There's a whole lot more there that's worth thinking about this afternoon. Just go back, look up those five references, and think about what each of those means. And think about that middle realm where there's a battle going on today. And the fact is, brothers and sisters, there's a battle going on all around us here because of not multiculturalism, but because of the multitude of foreign gods that are all around us. And we are in a battle. And we are told that we've been given weapons and to put on those weapons. And every piece of the, the armor there in Ephesians 6, beginning with verse 10 through 16, all relate to Christ. There's the belt of truth. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. He is the belt of truth. There's the breastplate of righteousness. Christ has been made to us righteousness. It is Christ. 
the gospel, the shoes of the gospel of peace. Christ is the good news that we preach. The shield of faith. He is the faithful one. The helmet of salvation. He is the Savior. The sword of the Spirit. He is the Word of God. And then it says, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions. He is our intercessor. So it's really, it begins being positioned in Christ and it ends being armed in Christ. And the Christian life is one being lived out not in our own strength. Because we don't have what it takes. But it's being lived out because of our position in Christ. Our prayer life, which appropriates all that there is in Christ. In the presence of the Holy Spirit who imparts to us all that there is in Christ. Amen.